This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk with a focus on physical isolation, coronavirus, and politics. I'm Zachary Shahan, Director and CEO of Clean Technica, and I'm here with Mike Bernard. Mike? Yeah, Michael Bernard, uh, Chief Strategist of TFIE Strategy Inc., The Future is Electric, um, as well as a couple of startups that uh, I'm founding and a couple of boards that are negotiating, having me on them for deep tech and clean tech startups. So, and if you're... If you're a regular Clean Tech Talk listener, you know that we sort of alternate who's the host of these episodes, uh, sometimes me, sometimes Mike, uh, but sometimes we just get together to talk about specific topics ourselves. So today we've got a, a list. Uh, Mike, to start off, how are you doing in regards to physical isolation these days? Yeah, the physical distancing is going well. I mean, it's uh, not dissimilar from what I did before my uh, decade of trotting around the globe. I mean, I wrote for Clean Technica while in airport lounges on several continents, uh, you know, when I was based in Sao Paulo and Singapore and stuff. But uh, for the past year or so, I've been you know, fairly stably based in Vancouver. So my home office, just to say a tiny glass-walled solarium in downtown Vancouver, has been seeing a lot more of my presence. Um, and that just seems to be something that's continuing. I just happen to be not going out for coffees and meeting people locally anymore. How about you? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I actually lived this <laughs> lifestyle for several years in Poland. Um, I'm sort of a, I, I, I'm, I'm happy alone as it is, but uh, with two kids in Florida, uh, one was supposed to be in kindergarten, so she's switched to online schooling. Um, it's a little rambunctious lately, but <laughs> when they locked the tennis court, our tennis court, that's when it got a little more difficult, but, but it's, I, you know, I have, I'm probably in the top one percentile for how easy this is. So no complaints here. And uh, you were saying that you've actually, you have a, an interesting professional matter right now in this regards, um, or two, two projects. Well, let's step back one, one thing. Right, right now, we're, we're doing the physical distancing because of the coronavirus, a global pandemic. Um, and one of the things that's in my background, which is making this current time interesting, is that I help build the most sophisticated pandemic management solution in the world with you know, a major technology company for the Canadian government post-SARS uh, in the late 2000s. Um, that's now helping you know, manage the um, pilgrimage to Hajj and Mecca. It's managing pandemic response statistics and outbreak communications and communicable disease cases and contact tracing and all those epidemiology terms that people know about across Canada. And so, you know, now it's kind of funny because when they do the news reports uh, from different provinces, half the time it's like data from Panorama, which is 
kind of cool because I helped to build that. Um, but moving forward, the entire social distancing versus physical distancing, and Zach, you, you, I, you, I've confused you as well because I think you even used physical isolation, is funny because I'm involved in two different startups. Um, sorry, one, one proposal to build this and one startup on the other half of it. The proposal is for designing an objective agent-based simulation score for social isolation, especially for multi-unit residences and social housing. The idea being that you can simulate the traffic over a month and come up with an objective quantified score for which technology, which building layout gives the most opportunity for people to interact. Um, when they were getting within three meters or six meters of each other and they, there isn't a wall between them. So, so, the so, the, so the opposite is social, you're looking for social integration as a, as a goal rather than social, social isolation, right? Yeah, it's, the design is to prevent shut-ins and to increase health of residents. And it applies to office spaces as well. There's an objective measure of a greater ability to interact and collaborate with coworkers as much as you know, nerds who like to keep their head down dislike that. That actually has you know, positive aspects to it as well. And you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff related to channeling people through narrow areas versus letting them disperse, the number of exits, the number of entrances, space syntax, which is a formal mechanism for abstract graph plotting of the built environment. A whole bunch of interesting stuff, but I'm working with a cool team on that. But the inverse, we realized, is that we're kind of doing this interesting startup, which applies the same technology to create an objective score for physical distancing when people get within two meters, when they're forced to funnel through doorways, when they touch the same objects, when they do things like that. So it's, it's an interesting space, um, you know, and it's very difficult to do well because the simulation tech that's out there for pedestrian simulation, it's all Brownian motion and it's designed for stadiums and fire exits. It's not designed for a whole bunch of people just going about their daily jobs. It's not what it does. So, yeah, well, we, I, don't, I don't want to go down that road too far, but I know both being urbanists, both having a long history in city planning, urban planning topics. Uh, I remember, you know, from my graduate days and working in the field a bit, you know, a big focus of planning these days is to try to get people into, you know, interactive public spaces, you know, socially integrating, um, getting kind of mixture of uses and, and, and people's. And uh, it's, I'm a little nervous, a little fascinated by what's going to happen in this era as we become more hygienically focused, um, how much, you know, pro standards, programs, uh, plans are going to be aimed at keeping people apart, which, you know, creates its own problems. Um, but it's uh, definitely a fascinating time in many regards. Well, if you think about it, though, if you have both objective scores for the same space, then you can find a balancing act to meet both aspects of the design brief so that you can, when we're in periods of physical distancing, have, you know how many people can be supported in the space in an objective manner. Um, and it's designed to allow them to have a greater number. But at the same time, we will start being able to discover what enables physical, dis you know, uh, social uh, interaction scores to be high in the same space. Um, and, you know, I can make some hypotheses about that, you know, more, more open space better because, you know, fewer narrow hallways, uh, more opportunity for people to meander on 
on curving paths. If you think about it, it's kind of, in some ways, it would be like um, the urban street layout of Vancouver without expressways versus the expressway heavy um, road layouts of many cities in North America. Um, you know, instead of funneling people through, you enable them to disperse and have interesting interactions outside of the primary pathway, but also avoid people better. So it's an interesting space, um, but it does mean that, you know, when we have these conversations, I end up forgetting whether I'm talking about isolation or distancing and physical or social. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's just a bit confusing. Yeah, and I mean, I, the, the use of the, the term social isolation and social distancing is is just a little funny or odd, I think, um, because, you know, these days, much of our socializing is done online, on social media, that kind of thing. It's not the same as done in person, of course, and that's a big problem of, of itself, perhaps. But um, but really what we're practicing in my you know, in a literal sense, it's physical distancing, not, uh, not social distancing. Um, of course, that eliminates a kind of social interaction but uh yeah well let's wh where do you want to go from here now i know we you have we have a long list of interesting topics to to discuss well i think the uh, first place to go is just the groups in the north in the united states that are explicitly not practicing physical distancing and not staying at home um, but are in fact protesting in legislatures and blocking asset access to hospitals ah uh, the scientists right <laughs> oh, exactly. It's the, it's the that reality-based community, as Susskind wrote, you know, years ago. That's the problem. Uh, but if we look at those people, the an interesting study just came out of a um, a kind of a planning and uh, it's a planning journal. That what they did is they took some early projection of potential fatalities um, by different categories of people in the pandemic. Published a peer-reviewed paper, which is you know subject to to risk. But what it found out was exactly something that I published on, you know, I think an evening clean technica um, over the past couple of months. The Republican voters are much more susceptible to, to you know, dying of the coronavirus. Um, and it's Republican voters who are out there protesting. And it's their relatives who are also Republican voters. They're putting themselves and others in harm's way. The paper suggests that in several swing counties and states across the United States, if fatality projections bear out, in November, that alone could tip entire counties and entire states blue just by itself. Um, yeah, and, and I, would, I would think it's also worth noting that even if, even for the ones who don't die um they're going to probably know some people who died from it i mean this is uh, which which will maybe adjust their opinion a little bit on how the whole crisis was managed right well it will and you know the um the polling aggregates for trump he had a little bump um up to his maximum polling favorability since, oh, I don't know, uh, February 2016, whenever, 2017. You know, his first month in office, he had a little blip where he was the new president, and they did the coronation and blah, blah, blah. And ever since then... Was that like after the State of the Union speech, the first where he he went a little crazy for a month and he had a State of the Union speech, and uh, or, or that was earlier? No. It was very early on. It was early. It was, You're talking about the early, early, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
His disapprove ratings have been under 50% since. He's never gotten up to that. And if we think about that, if we think about Trump's disapprove ratings versus approve ratings and his people's trust, his he had a moment there where it seemed like there might be a useful populist authoritarian, but stick on to mess, stick to messaging and not be insane uh, ruler emerging. Um, and he got a little bump and it got up to 48%. What is it? 52% disapprove 43, 8% approve or something like that. But now he's been going downhill since because, and you know, the stuff last night with, or two nights ago with, uh, you know, inject Drano into your veins and swallow UV light bulbs. Um, don't you think Dr. Bricks is not going to be helping. Um, the trust public trust polling around uh, Trump and his evening uh, briefings has been plummeting. There's recent polling shows him at 20 to 30% trust in what he says. Uh, and these are national polls. The polling uh, aggregate, these are um, the numbers I'm citing for the uh, stuff are out of 538 for you know, likely voters, which are more realistic than the overall polling. So it's people who have voted in previous and recent elections and have a history of voting and what they're going to do. And that those people don't like Trump that much. Uh, Biden is beating him in multiple uh, Biden is beating him in multiple key states by five to nine points. Even Florida now, which is even uh, Florida, which is like if he loses Florida, you know, this is people say there's basically, you know, that's I mean, that's this is considered one of the best swing states for him. So, um, yeah, that would be a big deal. Well, one fascinating thing, I don't know if you want to uh, talk about it a little more or not, but, uh, you know, I've always the whole period of, of this, this Trump era uh, it's very hard to put, figure out who supports Trump and why beyond kind of conspiracy theory kind of portion of the population that just likes him because of his personality or something. And there's there's a kind of group of semi-moderates, you know, Republicans who who basically disagree with him on all kinds of style things and, and some a lot of what he says. But they're sort of like, well, that's Trump being Trump, but at least, you know, the economy is good, this or that. And they don't, they sort of avoid, don't even look at, don't never see, or just brush off some of his more ridiculous statements because, you know, he makes a lot of those. Um, my first article about him in June, I think, 2016, running for president was, can the U.S. really elect a conspiracy theory president? Because we knew his history of crazy ideas. Um, but I think in this period, it's like, it's got to be, I feel like it's breaking a barrier where people see it as not just a quirk of his, but as something that's dramatically impacting the country that's really destroying our response to the crisis, that's really causing great economic harm. And then you see these kind of statements when people are on the edge of their seat trying to learn about the, the health issues, and they see these kind of statements because they're paying attention. And it seems like it's got to be a breaking point. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like it's got to be, but I don't, I don't know. Well, it will be for many people. I mean, and that's what we're seeing from the polling nationally. Um, you know, the reality is I, I published multiple times and you and I have discussed that his path to um, a second term was always worse than his first path. Um, you know, the, the challenges that Hillary brought to the table were mostly not her. Uh, she was trying to president while female. And so she lost a bunch of people who just, even Democratic voters, who didn't think that a woman could do it. 
I mean, we, we lost a whole bunch of Bernie uh, Sanders supporters in 2016. Um, and some of it was just misogyny. Sorry, guys. Um, you know, we can see the same thing of polling around Warren versus Sanders versus Biden versus Buttigieg. You know, you look at the polling about of Sanders supporters and who they would support if he didn't get the nomination. And it was over 20 percent wouldn't vote for, for Warren and close to that many for Buttigieg. But a lot of them would vote for for Biden. And, and what does Biden have that Warren doesn't and Buttigieg didn't? Hmm. Straight white male. Um, you know, it, it's hard to infer much other than um, that because Warren was so close to Sanders from a progressive stance. Um, you know, and so as we look at coming into this election, we don't have um, the absurd Hillary Benghazi pieces. We don't have Hillary's emails. We don't have an FBI investigation, which is going to blow up five days before the election. Uh, we don't have um, an American populace that has challenged to extend their idea of what a potential president of the United States is to include being a woman. Um, all of those things were already unfavorables. Now, what Trump had going for him, as you said, it was the economy and the jobless rate. I mean, he was more than not riding the economic boom that Obama had created. You know, Obama and with, you know, Republican help, you know, because they actually had held the purse strings well, for that period. Also, I mean, that started basically the first two years of Obama's presidency was a Democratic Congress. Mm -hmm. And that's when they got stuff through negotiating and, and not doing the opposite of what Republicans would do, like actually trying to make it a bipartisan thing. And then after that two years ended, almost nothing happened. I mean, the GOP yeah. was the party of, of the party of no, they just blocked everything. So we had like a recovery for a short period of time, recovery effort, and then stifled for six years while Obama finished his presidency and then Trump took over and, uh, and it got worse. But, um, but, you know, yeah. even then, you know, the, the bailout of the big three had occurred, um, you know, much as, you know, one of them claims it wasn't bailed out. It just received an absolutely ginormous low interest loan um, that it still hasn't paid back. Unlike what, what company paid back their loan early? Nine years early. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Tesla, Tesla paid back their There um, we go. Nine years early. And people are on social media these days trying to claim Tesla, <laughs> trying to bring it Tesla's early uh, not even going to go down that route, but it's ridiculous I'm trying to sort of act like Tesla got a huge amount of support. And that's the only reason it exists when, you know, it was the only one to pay back early. And, uh, and it got a fraction. I mean, we're, we're talking, what did I, I did the cat, did the math. They got 500 million and the other companies got like 16 billion, <laughs> you know, yeah. and they paid it back and the other companies never did. So, cause two of them were just pure, bailout they ended up being bought and the third one was a massive low interest loan which hasn't been paid back but going forward you know trump's success hinged on americans saying but my 401k and but my job and the jobs of others right it was this this was it's there's imperfect data to support this but the um you know it's, it's a clinton thing it's the economy stupid um, if you can deliver good economic results in your first term, there's, it, you're, it's very, it's more difficult for people to get defeated in their second term. Um, but now he doesn't have that. The economy is not coming back for November. 
jobs are not coming back for November. The, what is it, 3.5 million people, I think is the number I, I, it's a number I've seen, haven't looked in this one, have lost health insurance. Their health insurance isn't coming back. You know, the thousand buck checks, $1,200 checks are not going to bridge for a lot of people. There's going to be a tremendous amount of personal bankruptcy. There's going to be people, the, the American bread lines are absurd already. I mean, as one thing pointed out, you know, this is a very, this is a very American bread line when you see $35,000 cars in a mile long string. And that's the bread line where people are driving up to a drive through bread line in $35,000 cars. I saw, I saw a picture with a Hummer. I saw a video clip and it had a Hummer going through the bread line. Yeah, this is um, one of the things that people say about Americans is, you know, uh, every pauper in the America is a, in America is a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, which is, you know, the way part of the American psyche. But this is more than a bit temporarily embarrassed. This is deeply humiliatingly embarrassed. And even hardcore Trump supporters are are dwindling in terms of the comparative numbers with other countries. They're like pointing to Italy and Spain, which have managed to flatten the curves finally. Um, but the United States was over 50,000 confirmed COVID-19 deaths as of yesterday, 50,000. And the vast majority of those deaths were in the past four weeks. And the death rate is still accelerating. There are thousands of deaths a day. This is going to spread out. Um, as I wrote recently in a, a different site, that's a million people who are grieving and mourning. Families, friends, parents, grandparents, loved ones, loved people that they interacted with. Friends are posting, you know, saying they've skimmed, skimmed the obituaries and their favorite baker is dead and their dentist is dead. This is going to linger and rankle. And to your point, I can't see a way in which a tanked economy, crumpled 401ks, and a whole bunch of people out of work works in Trump's favor against Biden. You know, and so we probably want to pivot to Biden yeah, because well, I, I, there's only so many times people can say Trump's handling of the pandemic has been atrocious in these 57 ways, and he repeats himself. He repeats new mistakes, creates new mistakes every time he opens his mouth without it just turning really negative. So I'd like to pivot a bit yeah. well, to something more positive. Well, two, two things quickly. First, one is, you know, I, I think a lot of people who are sort of Trump apologists, they, they see him at least as decisive and strong, which I don't, but they, they do. And uh, I think one of the standout things in this era from my perspective is he's waffled like crazy. He's gone back and forth. He's come across as extremely weak. And I don't, I don't, I think even his supporters see that they must see that he's, he, he's weak because he's, whether, whatever he's pushing, he's like, he's doing it from a weak perspective and he's not really getting anything done. So I think that comes across and I think that's going to be something that sort of shakes people up a bit. Uh, second thing, just touching briefly on Florida too, you know, we have the unemployment issue um, but it's not just a matter of people losing jobs. Also, people can't even get their rightful benefits under unemployment system because of how broken our systems are. And Florida is the absolute worst. Seven out of every eight Floridians who have filed claims for unemployment are waiting. 
for them to process. They're, they're, they've been waiting for weeks or, or long, longer than a month sometimes because the system is completely broken. And the Republican governor, DeSantis, is blaming that on his predecessor, uh, Republican Rick Scott, who's now in the Senate. And they, his aides have, have, have complained that basically he broke the system so that the unemployment numbers would be low so that he would look good. Uh, and the problem right now, of course, is that this, the broken system is not getting people there uh, through the system. <laughs> and there's over a million people who, have, who are now unemployed trying to file for unemployment, not getting any benefits. So I think that kind of thing is going to have ramifications in the next several months as, you know, people who are... Trump supporters realize they got screwed uh, by a Republican system. So I, I think that's going to happen. But let's shift to Biden. Yeah. Uh, to, to your point about Trump, um, his flip-flopping, his wavering, it's always been there. We've always seen it. We've always known that he's about as constant as, uh, you know, a wind downtown in Chicago. You know, it's just comes from every direction depending upon what's happening. Um, and, but that's very visible. And it's results-oriented. His, his strongest supporters were willing to support him because they said, look at my 401k. Look at the job numbers. Look at the Dow Jones. And so he was running. They were forgiving him everything else because the economy was strong. None of those things are true anymore. And he's waffling. So that is impacting his polling numbers, and it will impact him in November. Um, but turning to Biden, there's two or three interesting things about Biden. So um, one of my pieces of background is that I helped build the most, pan- most sophisticated pandemic response solution in the world, uh, the Panorama Public Health Surveillance System in British Columbia. It was funded by the National Government in Canada. Um, after the SARS epidemic, where 100 or so Canadians died. Uh, it, SARS, of course, is also a coronavirus. Um, and it was lethal, and it killed a lot of people, mostly healthcare workers in the end, um, in, in Canada, and about 1,000 people in, in China. Um, but that was one of the first big modern um, pandemics. During Obama and Biden's eight years, in 2008 to 2016, they dealt with Ebola and H1N1. Now, H1N1, I I'm, I'm, haven't traced this back, but the assertion is that it was a swine flu that originated in the United States. Uh, Ebola, of course, originated in Africa. Did we have to shut down the economy because of either of those? Did yeah, um, I, don't, I don't recall a period of staying at home for months. No. Um, did, in fact... Uh, Obama and Biden and the Democratic Party shepherd through two separate bills worth billions to ensure that vaccine was created, that Americans were, uh, that sufficient medical supplies were distributed to states that needed them, that the curve was sufficiently flat, that we didn't have to shut down the economy entirely. Um, And did they then after that, replenish the vast majority of the stockpiles that had been drawn down by two global epidemics um, that did kill a lot of people. You know, they, there was a lot of worry about those. Um, in 2017, when Trump took uh, power, the American military provided him with a complete status report of the national 
repositories of medical goods. And they said, well, here's all the stuff that's good. Here's the couple of things where we're short, start filling the cupboard again, because, you know, H1N1, it was just over uh, a few years before, and we prioritize this over that. So let's finish the job. And here's the plan to do that. And no. So Biden also, so Biden has two successful pandemic responses as vice president. He has a folksy manner, which is that no malarkey stuff. It's kind of reassuring right now. He also has a deep knowledge of those pandemics and who to trust and who not to trust. You know, Fauci was being Fauci during Obama's years, and he and Obama and Biden interacted all the time. Same with BRICS. He knows who knows what they're talking about in this case, and he's not interested in grandstanding and stealing their thunder. Um, he also has a good record. In the third week of January, I think it was, Biden was on record giving a speech saying the coronavirus is serious. We have to treat it seriously. There's going to be a lot of deaths. We have to manage this down and we have to do it swiftly. So he's got a clear record of foresight about what was going to happen with the coronavirus. And this is just on top, of course, of all the people looking at the past four, three years of Trump and his challenged behavior with China and his lack of regard for, you know, things which even Republicans know work. You know, what's the biggest state for wind energy in the United States? Would that be Texas? You know, it's gone from 6% to 20, over 20% demand from wind energy alone in the past decade. And it's grid reliability has increased from dead last to 34th or 33rd, last time I checked, among the states. That's, Republicans know that wind energy works. So they look into him and say, hmm, Republicans are going to be hurting. Now, have you, have you seen the news that's coming out of Houston about what's happening with, I mean, let's talk about the oil and gas industry and Houston. Now, have you seen the news that's coming out of there in terms of bankruptcies and foreclosures and all those things? I've just seen a little bit since, I mean, uh, the, of course, the oil price dipping below $0, and then I saw some chatter, but uh, you can yeah, expound on that. Well, so I, I read the, an article with an inadvertently hilarious line in it. Um, basically, it was um, a, an article by, I think, the Houston Chronicle. Um, it was talking about the status of the diversification of the Texan economy and how bad it was and how various attempts had been made and abandoned, how universities had put in hundreds of millions of dollars into innovation hubs, which were then abandoned, um, and how the, you know, the, the Houston ecosystem of companies, especially, but all of Texas, were so heavily dependent on oil and gas. Now, last time around, we had a, last time we had a referendum in Texas was 2018 in the midterms. And uh, the governor was up for, for you know, election at that point, and Beto almost spun it. You know, didn't make it, but he took a lot more of the vote than anybody expected. The Senate, Ted, Ted Cruz for, for Senate, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I think, as close as it's ever been. Uh, and, you know, the, Texas has been slowly getting more and more purple and less red for a decade. You know, a lot of people are moving south. They're going to various places in Texas, and it's been liberalizing a fair amount. 
And now they're going to be hurting. The oil and gas industry realizes they're going to have to switch. Um, the inadvertently funny sentence was, well, if the oil and gas, well, you know, optimistically, oil should recover to its previous price and all the oil and gas companies should be fine. That's not what's going to happen. The new normal for the oil and gas industry has been emerging for at least a decade. Uh, one of the things I published in um, Clean Technica you know, not that long ago was an assessment of the oil and gas stocks in the Dow Jones 500. It, was, it clearly showed that since 2015, that portion of the Dow Jones uh, segment, which is a fairly hefty chunk, was, had been diminishing in value. It had been trending down. Now, coal had been trending down since about 2008, the valuation of coal companies and the, versus the valuation of oil and gas companies. But think about that. Since 2015, oil and gas market capitalization has been decreasing on average every year, while the Dow Jones stock index has been soaring. Up until coronavirus, the Dow Jones had just kept on the Obama curve which was a nice steep upward angle. Um, and now it's back down to before what it was when Trump took power and it was vastly led by the oil and gas stocks. Now what we have are banks, major financial debt holders foreclosing on the um, properties and seizing the property of the oil and gas companies. Now this is a new experience. What um, oil and gas has been funded in um, for the past probably eight years is a debt-fueled expansion. They always believed that oil and gas would increase in value. The um, major debt providers were happily to let them go further and further into debt to you know, explore and drill and stuff like that. But that was always dependent upon them having future revenues. And the entire natural gas fracking industry was heavily debt-laden and already starting to experience massive bankruptcy sweeps um, in November of last year, October of last year. Um, there's the bankruptcies of coal companies that we saw in 2017, 2018, 2019. This year and next year, it's going to be oil and gas companies. And they're going to go out of business and they're not going to come back into business. We're going to have a permanent reduction in oil and gas in North America. And that has some follow-ons. I'll just I'll, I'll piggyback on here for a second. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in the oil and gas industry with a lot of different perspectives, expertise, points of view. Um, so I, nothing is really universal. You know, you can't say, Oh, people in the oil and gas industry will, will react this way or will think about this or learn about this. And as you point out, it's a global, it's, it's sort of a long-term trend that's, uh, you know, landings in Trump's lap in some degree, um, which, you know, happens with presidents with all kinds of big matters um, and then gets sort of blamed or, or presidents get blamed or rewarded for, for long-term trends that they don't really have a huge influence on. But in this oil and gas instance, you have, you have a couple of factors that really do, I think, land a bit in Trump's lap on it. Uh, one is, you know, that the whole coronavirus situation has been a chaotic, ridiculous um, situation, and that's contributing, of course. And a second matter, you know, which I thought was really interesting early on, you know, when, when this pandemic started rising up, becoming a big issue, Russia and Saudi Arabia went into <laughs> hyper-dump 
oil mode, uh, which led to the, the price dropping dramatically. And, it, you know, I don't know how much other people recognize outside of, you know, our kind of world, but Trump sits very low on the pecking order of MBS, the prince of Saudi Arabia and Putin at Russia, in Russia. You know, historically, the U.S. is the big dog with the big stick and all that and has a strong position at the table. And for various reasons, it seems that Trump is more of a second tier leader in that trio and doesn't have much influence over them. So I think, you know, their ability to just say, screw it and dump oil and drive down the cost to drive out businesses, including you know, American oil businesses, uh, I think it's very squarely in Trump's lap as far as his weak leadership and his, his seeming deference to them in, in several regards. Um, so I think, you know, some people in the industry won't recognize that or, or will run away from it. Others might come to think, man, this guy really did a shitty job of protecting our business and my job. Well, there's three or four things. So let's go back to 2015 briefly um, and the extension of the production tax credit for wind energy, you know, something that you were, it was big news in our world. But what, why was the production tax credit spun out for an extension through 2020? Well, the answer was that the Republicans, what they got out of the deal was a, re- a removal of the um, ban on exporting crude oil from the United States, which had been put in place after the 1972 OPEC oil crisis, you know, back when uh, Saudi Arabia and a couple of other countries who are major oil exporters said, yeah, we're going to tighten up the nozzles. And that all of a sudden drove a change in cars. It uh, arguably drove the success of uh, Japanese car companies in the United States. Um, Everybody kind of, everybody who's alive then certainly remembers it. It was different. There were lineups at gas pumps or like mile long lineups of people hoping to get gas. The United States has always been a massive net oil importer. But in 74, Gerald Ford instituted the fracking innovation effort initiatives, which after 40 years of, gee, 40 years of subsidies and investment in a new technology led to a fundamental transformation. Does that sound like wind and solar to you? I don't know. It sounds like wind and solar to me. What people could perceive very clearly in 2015 and earlier was there was going to come a period sometime before 2025 when the United States would turn into a net oil exporter. They were going to start exporting oil. And, and there was a corollary impact there. You know, people I, I deal with um, in, you know, engineers and HVAC, because I deal with uh, another startup I'm engaged with around uh, commercial heat pump deployment. They, you know, talk about, in, for the past 10 years, people keep saying, well, natural gas is going to increase in price. And it hasn't. Um, uh, one of the conversations I had recently was with Lee Taylor, CEO uh, and founder of Resurity, who does this really interesting uh, insurance-based hedging modeling and uh, reinsurance products for the um, renewables industry. Started out with wind, now does solar and storage, um, has some fascinating stuff. But the conversation we were having was about um, volatility of energy prices. And part of that conversation was an acknowledgement that the current events are going to lead to a fundamental change in the volatility of natural gas prices. Reasons for 
why did natural gas get cheaper and stop being volatile in terms of price? In 2000 and probably seven, 2005, every winter you'd have this massive spike in natural gas prices as demand increased in the United States. That rarely happens anymore. And the reason it doesn't happen is because fracking, not only fracking for natural gas, but shale oil as well. It's the same technology, roughly. I mean, from the outside, a thousand miles away, it's still hydraulic fracturing to uh, an unconventional uh, extraction technique. Seventy percent or so of the United States natural gas comes from its oil wells, many of which are shale oil using fracking. The other thirty percent comes from fracking and and straight natural gas extraction, of which there's very little. That. Uh, the, that shale oil natural gas and the fracking natural gas, the combination of the two means that with the attributes of fracking, you can turn it up or turn it down, roughly speaking, um, as you need more or less gas. So you can establish a new fracking site, roll a team of roughnecks in, and six weeks later, you're producing gas. And so this is what's been happening across North America is when there's been, you know, a higher demand, all of a sudden the fracking crews and their meth addictions um, end up, you know, working and rolling into places and, you know, spreading communicable diseases and generally beating up the locals uh, on Saturday nights and polluting the water and causing micro earthquakes. This is important because that entire industry is based on a couple of things which are no longer true. Now, we get back to the Saudi-Russian uh, price war. Why are Saudi Arabia and Russia undergoing a price war? Are they doing it against each other? No, they're doing it against higher cost producers to drive them out of business permanently so that as the demand for oil proceeds through time and diminishes, Saudi and Russia will be able to get more of that demand. They get less profit out of it, but at least they'll have revenue for another 20 or 30 years. What they're trying to do is kill the high cost producers like Alberta, which I've written about the oil sands in Alberta, 80% um, shutdown of production there, I'm pretty sure. And like the United States, shale oil is being hammered by this price war and those those specific um, bankruptcies we're talking about in, in oil and gas are going to shut down production of oil inside the United States and natural gas. So that entire thing has been playing out. Saudi Arabia and Russia have been doing exactly what low cost producers do in any situation, they're trying to drive their higher cost competitors out of business to preserve their business strategically as long as possible. This is very clear. It's you know documented six ways from Sundays. That's what they're doing. The OPEC is very different from what it was in 72 when the world was awash in cheap oil and they're just trying to drive the price up. Now they see the end of demand and they're trying to drive the price down so they can just get any revenue going negative is a bit like shooting yourself in the foot to um, you know, win a foot race, but still that's what it is. And this is where Biden comes in. You know, so there's interesting stuff from the election in November as to how this will play out. And that turns into a real clean tech story. Biden, of course, 
you know, we've talked about this, I've published on this, uh, we've done a podcast on this. Uh, Biden's plan among the leading Democratic candidates was the worst of them. He was spending less, he was spending it less efficiently. The electrification of transportation plan was actually really good, just seriously underfunded. His idea of running um, transmission down through Central America to Latin America was more of a choice to combat the China Belt and, you know, whatever that is, China's China's uh, New Silk Road initiative, whose name I've temporarily forgotten. But it would still have provided cross, you know, joining the continents with high, with high volume transmission of electricity. And that would have been good for these types of things. He's also committed to re-signing the Paris Accord and bringing the United States back into the Paris Accord. He's also committed to signing the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Harm the Ozone Layer, which I've published about as well. That one is interesting because our every, every refrigerant that we use, well, we replaced most of them after the ozone layer started going away, replaced all the CFCs with HFCs. That's kind of a good news story because CFCs were really bad for climate change, it turns out, but HFCs are just slightly less horrendously bad. They go up to 14,800 times the global warming potential of CO2. That's a lot. Like natural gas, um, methane is 86 times, you know, kind of the, the one of the measures that's commonly used, 25 to 86 times. Some of the refrigerants in our cars air conditioning and our grocery stores, refrigerators and our home air conditioning is almost 15,000 times as bad. So it doesn't take very much of it to leak. The Kigali Amendment, you know, in Kigali, Rwanda, that's the named after the city, in June 2016, I think. Uh, well, guess what? They said, let's fix this. Let's replace them with low global warming potential, HFOs, and some HFCs. Uh, so there's gonna be a change of stuff. And in some cases, that's a bunch of stuff, other stuff. And that all goes with the heat pump stuff, basically, there's going to be a big wave of heat pump replacements over the next 20 years in North America and globally. And it's going to replace gas furnaces and air conditioners. So that's one of the reasons I'm paying attention to that space. The 6 million commercial buildings in the United States and Canada alone, it's a hundred billion dollar transformation in the next 20 years. So that's 5 billion a year just for that set of buildings. Um, so we see Kigali Men, we see the Paris Accord, we see Biden. Oh, we also see an oil and gas industry that's devastated. And we see that the bookmakers, you've probably seen this, we can pivot to this next. The bookmakers are starting to talk about Biden's Veep pick. Have you heard, have you seen the, what the bookmakers out of Vegas are saying? I haven't seen, I haven't seen, I've seen, now what, what's their guess? Well, I, I've been articulating a bunch of different patterns at various times. I think one of the times we talked about, you know, how you have to balance this stuff. And they're always, I'm not a, I, I'm observer of political strategy in the United States. No one calls me up and says, Mike, who should we pick? That's, um, but there's a few things, right? If you're a guy right now, maybe you want a woman as your V pick. Well, he's already, he's, he's said it would be a woman. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. Hundred percent sure it's a woman. I've seen. Uh, I think that's clear and sort of. And, a, and there's a list white. of. 
you might want a person of color. And if you're from a coast, you probably want someone from the interior. And if you're from the progressive arm, maybe you want someone from the moderate arm or vice versa. So there's really interesting set of dynamics and intersections, which, you know, we can use the word intersectionality and drive a bunch of triggered white right-wing guys nuts if they ever listen to this. But that's starting to turn into uh, Klobuchar, Warren, and Harris. Now, Klobuchar, we never got around to, you know, running an assessment of her climate plan before she disappeared from the race. Uh, you know, it just was so obvious that she was not going to be the candidate that I never got around to it. But Warren and Harris had the best climate change plans of any of the candidates. Harris's especially was a work of art, a work of brilliant art. Um, and she's a person of color and she's from the other side of the country and she's a woman. You know, that's not bad. Warren has a wonk, is a wonk to make a wonk's heart, you know, be. Um, and she's, you know, got a nice folksy way about her that kind of works well with the Biden team. Uh, and she knows stuff that Biden doesn't. And hers was very good as well. And she knows Wall Street. She really knows exactly what levers to pull. Um, I think Klobuchar is a you know, bit of a faint hope. I think she's too similar in terms of demographic appeal to Biden. But I think, you know, um, Harris and Warren probably are slightly in. But even then, you think they're not going to get a cabinet role? Yeah. Can you imagine as Kamala Harris with her amazing climate plan being given cabinet yeah. minister for climate change? I, would, I could see her... Um uh, in a few different potential roles. Um, well, I, I come back. I will come back to the biggest thing and say I'm curious what what came out of there. But um, a couple other names, just you know, commonly up there. Stacey Abrams was was mentioned before he announced that he was running. There was potential that he was going to announce that he was running with her as VP. Uh, there was a lot of chatter about that, like to the extent that it seemed like that was a real possibility, like that was being considered. Um, so I think she's still, she's, she's a, a black, um, she ran uh, for, she's a, she's a black uh, political leader, community activist, um, not a black. <laughs> uh, but uh, she basically might have won the governor race in Georgia and had it stolen, but she's too, um, disciplined and, and proper and, and professional to to go down that road uh, but she's she's very very good in a number of regards and has long been considered a potential choice and also um, governor Whitmer of, of Michigan is as I see it repeatedly on the top near the top of the list for considerations who brings a lot of different appeals of her own but again like Klobuchar I feel like she might be perhaps too similar uh, to Biden's uh, base or appeal appeal um to be the choice but uh, i'm curious are the better betters um, sort of choosing one of these uh, or yeah, a couple the betters of these? are saying the betters are saying warren harris or klobuchar that's it they're they're not they don't think these others have a real that's, shot the the top runners right now are those three um lots and of I mean, people are chattering I, classes are talking about abrams um you know lots of people are talking about cuomo right now as well yeah. Well, uh, well, I mean, because the, the interesting thing, because you have politicos, you have, uh, you know, sort of a uh, outside the beltway people who pay attention but are not really politicos. Um, it's an, from from my perspective, it seems like 
a lot of people just pick the the presidential candidates as potential VPs and sort of ignore that it's not all that, you know, presidents don't just pick another candidate in the primary to be their VP. Uh, so I think look at Sarah Biden's, Palin. Yeah. So I think Biden would be like, but I've never gotten a clear read on who Biden, is, you know, who he would prefer to be with. You know, uh, I know, I know that Obama recommended to Hillary that, you know, his experience was to pick someone you really enjoy to be, enjoy being with and really feel a connection with. And, and he felt really lucky that he picked Biden. Um, I'm curious who that is for Biden. And, and I, I, I feel like, you know, uh, Warren is, a, is an interesting idea in that regard for me, because I think he, he, they don't have a lot in common, but she, they, but then they, they have a kind of personality style, uh, kind of cultural thing in common, but then she's hardcore progressive, which would appeal to the the people they're probably most concerned about losing from the primaries, uh, the kind of Bernie and Warren supporters. But I don't, yeah. Well, and, and my analysis though says it doesn't really matter for our purposes, for what our audience cares more about, except for the ones like us who are just, you know, can't help but be obsessive about politics, especially you. Um, <laughs> I know that you're all over this all the time, um, but... The, it's um, fun. But it's I think fun. what you were saying, too, the, who he puts in cabinet is, is more influential, for, actually. Yeah. And one of these, you know, Harris and Warren and their astounding plans are going to end up in there. You know, so his climate plan is going to be more important. Now, here's the deal as well. Oh, the new deal, the deal that ended the Great Recession, the Great Depression. Oh, what about a new deal that ends the coronavirus depression? What about a green new deal that pivots from oil and gas and coal, the diminishing, dying, volatile, vulnerable, weak, health, you know, challenged stuff from a health perspective, global warming initiatives, to a fundamental rebuilding the American economy for the clean technology of the new future. That's a, not a bad sell. When we start thinking about the signifiers there. We feel deeply for the oil and gas workers, just as we do for the, the coal workers. Those, those fuels have passed. We've seen how weak America is when our economy depends upon them. We've seen the devastation. And for this year, we have had an odd dividend of clear skies Vistas, which we haven't seen sometimes for decades. The air over LA and New York and Chicago, crystal clear. We have had the benefit of people who normally suffered from asthma, from air pollution, and parents who might have been, you know, we, we locked down so that we did not suffer, have them suffer from the coronavirus. But at the same time, they were not suffering from air pollution as they have done every decade for the past years. Why would we return to that? Why would we not return and turn instead to clean air and clean water and clean energy and an economy that's not subject to the whims of Russia and Saudi Arabia? And I think that would also transition well to um, the topic of the Senate, because that, you know, as a lot of people know, you're not going to get anything done if you can't get stuff through Congress, or you're going to get yeah. stuff done that just can be reversed by another Trump or whatever. Um, and uh, we have on our list here to talk about 
the potential for flipping the Senate. Yep. I've seen several analyses. Um, I've certainly seen this. So let's, let's run the numbers, just numbers running, right? So let's start off with 2016, 2.7 million more of the popular vote for Clinton. 2018, was it 9.6 million more of the popular vote for the limited number of Democratic candidates that were up, or you know, the, the limited races that were run in 2018 in the midterms. That's a big gap. Now, you know, after four years of Trump, we have a very motivated, you know, progressive base who realizes that, for the most part, that we could run a kumquat and it would be a better choice than Trump for the kind of things we actually care about in terms of social progress, the environment, global warming, um, the greatest good for the greatest number, um, you know, people actually getting an equitable shot at achieving, you know, basic stuff. Um, the Senate, a third of the seats are up in 2020. And a lot of the people who've been holding on to those seats for years and decades have already quit. They're not coming back. There's a lot of seats in play. And a lot of the formerly safe Republican seats are now not safe. The incumbent isn't there. The conditions have changed. You know, Trump is more of a drag in many of those seats than he was an advantage. You know, Trump in the midterms and, you know, special elections, every time he weighs in, half the time these days when he says, that's the guy to vote for, and it's almost inevitably a guy, uh, they lose. Yeah, I mean, we've seen even in states where you would think he wouldn't be a drag, like Alabama, Kansas, uh, you know, the Democrats had big upsets with, uh, with winning Senate and, and governor positions. So I, you know, when you consider the, the, the ones where it's clear he's a potential drag, you know, the Susan's, Susan Collins, and uh, these kind of uh, Colorado, Gardner, I, you know, it's, you know, I, Democrats are very they call this perennial bedwetters, whatever. We're always worried that it's all going to collapse. But if you look at it objectively without you know, any emotion, um, it's very hard to see um, strong odds for Republicans in these kind of, in, in these races. No, it's like Trump right now. Now here's here. Fast forward for a bit. Think about these races. Think about the senators the candidates from Republicans trying to say to Trump, don't come, don't talk about this race. How is Trump going to respond to that? It's a lose-lose situation for Republicans where he's going to be a drag on them. They can't win. There's just no way to shut them up. There's no way to prevent them from him from being a petulant, spoiled child. There's no way to prevent him from coming or not coming. It's challenging. And once again, the demographics are changing. Now, as I said, I talked about the study, I think at the beginning, and, um, and you know, I think we, before we, in the current recorded version, as opposed to our couple of false starts, um, when we were dealing with technical issues, but I think I talked about the study that uh, was in the public policy journal, which did modeling based upon projected county by county fatalities based upon some early potential numbers and found that many of the counties and hence states would swing this year simply because Republican voters are much more likely to be dead. 
it's a horrific, morbid thought. And that relates to the, I know we talked about the um, protests, uh, but they are, those protests are vectors for voters to mm-hmm. catch the disease. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, you know, if it was in a book or a movie, uh, you know, we'd put it down, we'd turn it off, we'd be like, this is too ridiculous. Well, I actually wrote that on Quora, I think even yesterday morning or the, day, the other morning when I was doing, you know, um, not the, not recrastination, where I was actually getting to any of the things that are on my task list, but what's that other, what's the reverse of recrastination? Oh, procrastination. I, I use Quora for procrastination. Somebody said, is Trump a villain? That was a question. And I said, well, villain is typically a term that's used in fiction. And I've written some fiction, and I know some fiction writers. I think, you know, I've talked about this. I, I was actually Margaret Atwood's clean tech advisor and consultant for a couple or three years. She'd email me and say, Mike, what do you think about this? Air carbon capture, for example. You can imagine that conversation. I had lunch privately with the woman who was behind The Handmaid's Tale, a cultural phenomenon in the United States. And my response about Trump was, well, from a fictional villain, if you wrote Trump as a fictional villain, it would get thrown in the circular file so hard that the circular file would be ejected through the side of the building at high speed because he's just so ludicrously absurd that he's unbelievable in fiction. Yeah, it would fit fitting more of something like Spaceballs than uh, than actual, you know, than actual uh, work of, you know, attempted work of convincing persuasive fiction. And and I mean, he just fits so many stereotypical boxes too. Like you can't have a villain that has so many, <laughs> so many different, you know, it's supposed to be different villains with different of the, you know, sharing these, splitting up these traits, not having them all in one person. And, and villains, it's nice if they have some redeeming qualities and there's some complexity and you can maybe see their point of view. It's like if L. Ron Hubbard wrote a bad villain, it would be Donald Trump. And L. Ron Hubbard created Scientology as well as, you know, that horrible... Yeah, that horrible um, precursor movie that John Travolta, famed Scientologist, produced. Getting back to the Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.